house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. In my stories, you can see what's coming, but you don't see everything that's coming. Which are you, an artist or a writer? I'm just an entertainer of children, and I like to draw. I won't be a bad mother to her. Who is he? He wants a summer job. What would he do for you? If he thinks he wants to be a writer, he should see how long it works. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that is also the kitchen you've always wanted. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, freelance entertainment writer Chris File, and I am here with my co-host, senior writer for Decider.com, Joe Reed. Hello, Chris. How are you? Ah, I am really good, but um, hey, do you do you hear that? Do you hear that sound? It's the sound of something trying to not make a sound. It's the sound of the Focus Features uh, intro logo music and, and me sinking into my seat and traveling back in time to when I was just out of college and would go to the indie movie theater every week and see everything that Focus would throw at me because I loved it. I love that you mentioned the opening intro focus music, the just like the wah of it. Yep. It's like it's like ambient, um, like yeah. It's a mindfulness exercise all its own. It is. It truly is. But oh man, I get so nostalgic about it. I also love that in all this time that Focus has existed, it's like they haven't changed anything about their logo. Like granted, neither has like, the searchlight. Yeah. It's perfect. You don't mess with perfection. Also, it's like. I mean, we'll talk about focus in this podcast, but like, (laughs) once we mention what movie we're actually talking about, Um, but there's there's something to their resiliency as a studio that I really like. I do as well. Listeners are about to find out like just the degree that we, you and I, have had conversations exclusively about focus features. Oh my god. Like, if there are studio stands, like, we stand focus features. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I stand focus features more than... I will... I have been reliably entertained by them more than I have by a lot of other, like, individual artists. <laughs> like, directors and actors and such. There, It's interesting, like, what their slate is this year. Because, like, we've had longer conversations that it's like, Oh, my God! they have They are stacked. They are, like, coming back in full force this year. And... I mean, by the time this episode airs, we'll be out on the other side of Toronto, so we'll have seen Boy Erased. We'll see if everybody knows has registered a little bit more, but it's not necessarily looking like that's coming to fruition, that there are going to be some heavy hitters this year. Yeah, they were looking real good on paper. And then, I don't know, it's maybe some things aren't finished, maybe some things aren't as good as we had hoped, but uh, (laughs) Mary Queen of Scots, we're all counting on you, essentially. Yeah, we're rooting for you. We're all rooting for you. Yeah. So, Chris, why don't you tell everybody what movie we're talking about that has us in a focused frame of mind? 
as our uh, early reference might have hinted at, if you have seen the film, this week we are talking about The Door in the Floor, the 2004 John Irving adaptation starring Jeff Bridges and Kim Basinger as grieving parents. Uh, based on the first third or so of yeah. John Irving's book, A Widow for One Year, um, the film's most beloved for its performance by Jeff Bridges, and it came about five years before he would finally win his Oscar for Crazy Heart. Yeah. I feel like that's the that's the prime mover of the Oscar buzz on this. Although it's interesting because we talk a lot about movies that sort of had this great on paper Oscar buzz and then people saw them and it sort of fizzled because the movie isn't really good. This is the rare movie that we're going to talk about on this podcast that I genuinely love. Oh, and I love this movie too. I think it's really great and I think it's sort of fallen into I think if this were more if this movie were remembered more like Children of Men is member is remembered, which is sort of reverently and the idea that like, well, the Oscars really missed the boat on that one, I probably wouldn't think it would be a really great fit for this podcast. But I think the door in the floor fits because it has sort of fallen through this crack of memory where it's not like people fully have forgotten this movie, but it's not like anybody really ever talks about it either. And it's not a Children of Men style, like Oscars Missed the Boat, but it's also not this, like, schadenfreude, you know, Captain Corelli's mandolin kind of a movie either. So I think it's interesting that we can talk about where it kind of fell through the cracks and why a performance like Bridges gives in this movie wasn't able to crack the Oscar lineup, which, I mean, we'll talk about it, but, like, that was crackable, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, uh, to your point of the movie isn't exactly forgotten, I think at least if we're talking about Jeff Bridges and his performance, which is definitely the closest that it got to an Oscar nomination, and probably the thing that we remember it for the most, I mean, I think this performance probably has way more fans like you and I than his actual Oscar win has. I don't talk about crazy heart. I think among people we talk to and among sort of, you know, people who follow film for a living. Yes. I think crazy heart managed to, in its own limited way, break through into some kind of like public consciousness in a way this movie never could. And I think that's a big reason why he won. I also feel like, I mean, the Crazy Heart Oscar win was very much a confluence of nothing else is happening this year. Jeff Bridges, we all sort of like the the Oscar voter demographic all remembered at once that like we owe Jeff Bridges an Oscar. And, right. you know, this is a genre we really like. This is a character type we really like. And... I feel like that was very much uh, all the ingredients fall into place. Something that, you know, gets tagged with Julianne Moore's win for Still Alice, and I sort of rustle up against that because I feel like I think she is, and that movie is a lot better than Crazy Heart is. But I think those two kind of get, like, lumped in the same type of category. This is going to be an episode of the two of us just agreeing on things because I also very (laughs) much agree with you on Still Alice and that it's wonderful. Um... I don't know that I, the one thing I won't agree with you, I don't know if you could talk to the average moviegoer about Crazy Heart, because I don't, I don't, I, 
tell me more about how you think it permeated the public consciousness and beyond Jeff Bridges. I mean, not beyond Jeff Bridges, but (laughs) but I also don't know if necessarily it needed to. And when I say the public, I still mean, you know, the greater public who watches the Oscars. You know what I mean? The greater public Well, the Academy votership is closer to the average moviegoer than the Academy would like to admit, as far as... Right. Maybe not their taste, but, like, what they're conscious of and what they're not. Right. I think sometimes we can be in a little bit of a rarefied air, and I hate to talk about bubbles because I think it's stupid, but also, like, the idea that Bridges is better remembered for his performance in the... or that Bridges' performance in The Door and the Floor is remembered more fondly than his Crazy Heart performance feels very much a thing of... Even though it wasn't a thing at the time, like, film Twitter... Oscar blogs, like that kind of thing. The sort of self-selected community of film enthusiasts that we have trying to make something happen that might not happen. But this movie, because you brought it up before, this was a especially a best actor race, and I would argue the uh, um, the adapted screenplay race was totally crackable. To use your word, yeah. I mean, to, the two thousand four Oscars were a very weird thing where it really narrowed down to this very small handful of movies pretty quickly and the aviator and million dollar baby and then i would also say sideways took up so much of the oxygen that like even ray and finding neverland as the fourth and fifth uh, best picture nominees that year felt like they were total afterthoughts ray less so because jamie fox was barnstorming the best actor race but they had those five movies and like what else was there really? Do you know what I mean? Like they're they yeah. really just swallowed up basically everything. I mean, and especially for a movie like this that opened in the summer and it got mixed positive reviews. Like I would Jeff say. Bridges was definitely the best part of the reviews for this movie. I went back and read some of these reviews and I think I don't understand where some of the people were coming from with this. Like the, there's a lot of complaints about the tone of this movie that it shifts to like all out comedy and then tragedy. And I'm like, I mean, Jeff Bridges is funny, but like, this is a, this is a drama. This is typical John Irving, like melodrama. Well, and I, I, I think it is, I think you're right. And I think the John Irving thing, nothing is made from a John Irving book which doesn't feel deeply, deeply him. I think his tone is so specific. And I think in the final third of this movie, there are moments. I mean, the whole thing where he's sort of on the run from Mimi Rogers and, you know, sort of stumbling through these grass hedges and then the sketches of, like, Mimi Rogers' vagina or, like, stuck to the windshield and, like, all of this stuff. And it's definitely... That feels like farce. I think I would say, and I think it was A.O. Scott at the Times who said in his review that, like, the movie handles that shift in tone pretty well. I and agree. And is mean, able those... to, like, move back to the end, you know, where then it becomes sort of serious again. And I think Bridges helps a lot with that because he is this sort of – it's just the figure he cuts is so interesting because he can be both serious – and a little bit threatening, and then you sort of feel silly for feeling threatened because it's Jeff Bridges, and I think this movie kind of 
you know, capitalizes on that a bit. Where, like, the John Foster character is intimidated by him, and then by the end of the summary, he's like, why was I intimidated by him? Yeah. We should do a 60-second plot. Uh, oh, yes. Okay, so... So that people, so that the listeners know what's going on. Joseph. Yes. Are you ready to give a 60-second plot of The Door in the Floor? Oh, boy. Okay. Sure. I am timing you starting now. Okay, so Eddie is this uh, prep school kid from Phillips Exeter. He's played by John Foster. He uh, is going to spend the summer working for this author, uh, Ted Cole, played by Jeff Bridges. Uh, He's a children's book author. He is kind of... uh, I don't he's sort of slothful and 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 sort of a lech and his marriage to Kim Basinger is Marion uh is not going very well they had two uh teenage sons who died some time ago now they have a four-year-old daughter named Ruth played by Al Fanning and um the marriage is falling apart and then Eddie in this very John Irving way finds himself very attracted to Marion and they start having an affair and then she who is sort of mentally checked out makes plans to leave um, not only her husband, but her daughter. And uh, Eddie sort of has to facilitate this. And Jeff Bridges gets really, really mad at him. And they sort of come together at the end. And the it's, it's sad. That's your time. Okay. So I Did mean, I leave anything out? I feel like I might have left out a second. No, and that's okay. the thing. Maybe that's partly why we kind of delayed our 60-second, like, plot synopsis is because this isn't a very plotty movie like you could explain it and be you know give the full gist of it within like a sec a sentence or two i feel like the only thing that i left out which is the mimi rogers stuff which does sort of play into the plottiest parts of the movie which is yeah he's sort of uh in the in his free time which he seems to have a lot of here they're in this like long island beach community and he sketches her, and uh, they have a scene where uh, Marion, the Kim Basinger character, sort of explains to Eddie what Ted's process is as a sketch artist, and it's that he goes through these phases, which are the the main point is that at some point he starts intentionally sort of humiliating and degrading his model, his nude model. So he's having this affair with Mimi Rogers while at the same time sketching her and is sort of being incredibly cruel to her at some point and sort of positioning her around very harshly and not giving her any kind of positive feedback and eventually sort of grows tired of her and and gives up on her and then she sort of flips out and there this that's what leads to this farcical chase at the end where she's trying to run him down with her car and he had all the sketches of her these nude sketches of her that are now blowing all around in the wind through her hedges and it has to do with her groundskeeper and it's 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 a lot of stuff i can see why somebody would watch this movie and just be like why all of a sudden are we running around with the groundskeeper and the sketches and these, you know, towny girls that have taken bridges in and now he's running through the hedges? And I sort of get that. I think being even a little bit familiar with John Irving's work and his tone, it's a little bit easier to take it. But well, and that's the thing is that I like I watch those sequences and I'm not laughing all that much. Like I think it's silly in that the point is we're all ridiculous, right? And when we behave the way that we, like, our impulse tells us to behave, we're ridiculous. 
but I don't know. I'm not. If anything, it's like you relieve some of the pressure of that's been building up in this movie by like laughing a little bit at it. But yeah, I think it, the word for me is ridiculous more than farcical. But I mean, like, yes, that's like the fine line. I've read some John Irving, and like that's kind of the fine line he weaves of like people are just absurd, but it's not necessarily funny because everybody is so um everybody's just a walking disaster when they like yeah. let loose but also i don't this okay let's talk a little bit about john irving for a second let's um because it's one of five john irving movies it is i think handily the best one yeah, um, I would say. I mean, World According to Garp has its charms, I feel like. But yes, it, I would say. It definitely does. But World According to Garp is the one that is, at least, I haven't read the book, but I've seen the movie. At least in the movie version of it, that takes like the like extreme cliches that happen in every John Irving novel and takes them to their most like punishing effect because like in every John Irving novel, there's going to be like formative sexual experiences. Someone's going to be maimed probably in a car. Yep. And world according to Garp is just too infidelity is always punished very severely. Like, yes, there's, I mean, you know, essays have, likely been written about the way John Irving treats his female characters, which is not as one-sided as you might think, but like he does, he does love the narrative of a, a bad or abandoning mother. Um, There's, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. There's a lot. His other movies that have been adapted, we mentioned World According to Garp. We've talked about Cider House Rules on this podcast before, which Cider House Rules is fine, but it also like glosses over all of the like horribleness of a John Irving novel. Um, and then you also have Simon Birch, which is originally The Prayer for Owen Meany and The Hotel New Hampshire. Um, Simon Birch being a massive... Uh... Bomb. and like bomb. critics hated it so much so so much and that even takes like the john irvingness and doesn't get the tone right and it turns it almost into like a cartoon of silliness right you know where you have simon birch like screaming boobs and grabbing a teenage girl's <laughs> breasts yeah yeah that's not a good movie oh man we didn't even mention that when we talked about ashley judd in our uh double jeopardy episode probably with good reason because we like her we don't want to like keep yeah. associating that movie to her but his tone is very specific. It's very sort of northeast by the water, you know, if not New England, then this, like I said, it's this Long Island beach community. And, you know, the fact that the Eddie character is a prep school kid from Exeter, like not a, not a surprise. Like there is definitely a sort of strata of life that Irving likes to write about. And this was based off of uh, the book A Widow for One Year, which was, I think, a late 90s. I remember, like, I think that was one of the novels that was new when I was still working at the public library. And there's less than a decade between the movie and this book. Yeah. Um, It was definitely largely anticipated as any new Irving book would have been. And I believe it was something of... I could be wrong. I want to say it was something of a disappointment, but I can't be sure. And Lord knows I didn't like run in literary circles. So who knows? But so that whole story, interestingly enough, is not about 
the Eddie character or even the Ted character, like the main character in A Widow for One Year is Ruth, the character that Elle Fanning plays. And the book sort of follows her as she gets older. The second, uh, the middle third, and then the last one follow her as she, you know, into her adulthood and, you know, she gets married and she she is the widow for one year. And uh, in, this, in this book, she eventually reconnects with Eddie towards the end. Um, but it's interesting. I think maybe that's why... It's weird to talk about casting Al Fanning as like a major, like casting a major actor, but like because Dakota Fanning was already such a deal, in was like oh tw- this is her younger sister and like she's really good for being four. Like she's not really tasked with a whole lot of like dramatic heft. But it was funny. I was watching her in some of those scenes with like her and Bijou Phillips. Bijou Phillips plays her like nanny essentially. Um, her sometimes like, nanny. Right. Who sort of, like, really hates the Eddie character, which is kind of funny. Um, the acting mismatch in those scenes with Elle and B.G. Phillips is, like, really clear and also kind of a bummer that, like, even at four, this girl was, like, blowing, you know, <laughs> Bijou out of the room. She doesn't, in this movie, like, she doesn't have that thing where it's, you can so clearly tell that it's a director like guiding this young performer to whatever is happening in the scene. Like she, it's oddly natural for a four year old. And it's less precocious than Dakota. I think Dakota sort of like gained a reputation for being like the most precocious of child stars who like, you know, remember when SNL did uh, the Dakota fanning show with uh, Amy Poehler? Yes. And the whole thing was, like, she was, like, reading fine literature and discussing, like, Fellini and whatever with her guests who were, like, adult people who were not nearly as smart as she was because she was incredibly, you know, so much wiser than her yeah. years. Um, I thought that was a I thought that was a funny take on her because, like, yeah, it's – and I love Dakota Fanning, but, like, that was her vibe, and I think Elle's vibe was always a lot more – naturalistic and downbeat which obviously if you followed her career like downbeat is kind of Elle Fanning's thing yeah that's the gig yeah that's the job (laughs) yeah exactly I really like her in this movie though I think she's probably my second favorite performer after Bridges I sort of struggle with basing her in this movie whether I think she's giving a bad performance or whether she's giving a good performance of a woman who is so checked out that she seems strange in these scenes. I don't know. There are That's why I think she is really well cast in this role because I mean and listeners will remember from the episode where uh, I talked about I hate, hate her in LA Confidential. I think she has certain limitations that like the confines of this role are perfectly suited for and make her kind of interesting. And I think and again, this is not to just like shit on this performer. There's a blandness about her that makes her grief in this movie and her like utter vacancy interesting to me. I think that's right. I think like usually we're used to seeing grieving people who are like flying off the handles or who are at least emotionally intelligent in a certain way that I think she performs her to not be that 
is interesting to me that I, I may not be interesting to all people, but it just doesn't feel like the same type of grieving mother we usually see. And I think a lot of the reviews of her performance pegged her as such because she, like we've said, she's so like vacant and like checked out. Yeah. And, and she needs to be reduced easily. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably true. I think I'm probably a little bit more harsh on her when I, when I think about this movie. Um, and I don't know. So we talk about focus because I feel like that's, I think more than most movies, I think the studio that was producing this movie played a lot into the Oscar buzz as this was sort of coming down the pike before people saw it. Once people saw it, I think the Bridges performance really became the story. But I feel like yeah. focus was such a interesting studio in the Oscar game, especially at this point where this was the, you know, 2004, the interesting middle year between 2003, which was their big breakthrough, like huge Oscar success, not lost in translation, gets a best picture nomination, a best director nomination for Sofia Coppola. And then Coppola wins the uh, screenplay prize. And then 2005, Brokeback Mountain happens, Best Picture nomination. Everybody thought it was going to win. We don't need to talk about it. Ang Lee wins Best Director. Um, that also won screenplay, right? Uh, yes, it did. So, like, that's in, it's an interesting bookend with uh, with those two things, uh, those two movies. So, in the middle is 2004, which is one of its most interesting years because we've talked about before. Have we talked about it on the podcast or just between you and me about that Focus Features sizzle reel that would show up on DVDs before? any focus movie we have not talked about that on the podcast but we will post it to the tumblr yeah uh, i found it on youtube um thank god it was i love studio sizzle reels i think they should all do it i think it's so it's such a no-brainer to me i know like you know nobody watches dvds anymore so like when would you do it but like honestly tack it onto the front of whatever your vod and streaming movies are just do it because I think this came through from the like Miramax school of we're going to really do our best to brand our indie studio as something cohesive. And I think it does such a good job because if you end up loving one movie, you get this sort of vibe where you don't even have to sell it on the stars or the director. It's just sort of like, no, I want you to trust the vision of the studio. And, you know, on one level, you could look at it to it as like we're surrendering our artistic choices to the corporation in charge. But <laughs> I think when you talk about focus, they definitely did have a vibe. They definitely did have a cohesive vibe. And the version of the sizzle reel that I always remember the best is the one that featured all the movies from 2004. So it was Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It was The Door on the Floor. It was Vanity Fair, the uh, Reese Witherspoon movie that I was for sure certain was going to win her an Oscar, like, as that was coming down the pike. I was like, guys, it's her time. And we also thought Mira Nair would finally be nominated for Best Director. I was Vanity Fair was, like, their big play that year, and it bombed. Yeah, it bombed. Um, And it's funny that, like, she rebounded. It bombed so hard that I remember being like, ah, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, about Walk the Line. Where I was like, I'm not going to get too confident about this, you know? And so I was a little bit sort of, um, 
I poo-pooed the idea that Reese could win for Walk the Line for a good bit. And then, of course, obviously, that's where she won. Um, Motorcycle Diaries was also that year, which ended up being an Oscar winner for Best Song. Uh, and a screenplay nominee. nominee. Was it a screenplay nominee? I always forget that. Yeah. yeah um, it was an adapted screenplay. So a really interesting year for Focus, even though none of their movies reached the heights of a Best Picture nominee. But Door in the Floor really, really settles very nicely into this Focus vibe that I always... When I ever, whenever I think of like Focus as a company, like this is one of the first ones that I think about because it's so sort of tied itself to the golden age. You know, if we're talking about the golden, the golden age, age of adult drama, yeah, kind of the golden age of like Oscar bait that I love, the golden age of you know movies that I would go watch at the art house by my college, and again, just sort of fell in love with Focus as a brand for, you know, as silly as that sounds. I don't know. It sounds silly now because, like, you talk about the sizzle reel, and I was obsessed with those as well because it's like it would start all of your DVDs, and it's like, no, I'm not fast-forwarding this. No, why would Uh, you? (laughs) I'm watching this. Um, But I also, I, I could be wrong, I remember Searchlight having them a little bit, not to the point that Focus had them because I remember a few years' worth of Focus sizzle reels. Um but when you talk about branding for a studio, it's not something we even really see anymore other than like Disney Marvel and like look at the success it gives them and like what the buy-in is with the audience, obviously. But I would, it's obviously a very different tone of a very different company, but you look at the type of immediate buy-in that A24 has. And, like, we don't have to get too into it because, like, everybody's, like, it, it's to the point where it's, like, we're tired of hearing about how much you love A24. But, like, you can get a certain audience interested to see something that maybe they wouldn't have looked at twice simply because it belongs to that studio. I think that's right. I think also Focus sort of earned its reputation through... You know, it sort of came into being all at once in 2002, except if you were paying attention and if you knew what was going on, there's a, a strong history of indie movies throughout the, like, 90s and 2000s there, where, if you will allow me a digression. <laughs> yes, please sort of... digress into this because we we love this history. Um but yes, I'm assuming you're going to tell us the history of Focus and how they did not just appear out of the blue in 2002. Right. So in, <clears throat> pardon, in 2000, uh, sorry, 1999, yes, 1999, Barry Diller forms USA Films out of what he, uh, Barry Diller, of course, big TV and movie executive. He essentially like created the Fox Network. He was president of USA Network for a while, married to Diane Fur- von Furstenberg, like, big deal in TV. He creates USA Films in 1999 by purchasing October Films and Gramercy Films. October Films had been a thing since the 90s. They had done a bunch of Mike Lee movies. They did Life is Sweet. They did Secrets and Lies. They were a big deal in 96 with the indie wave at the Oscars in 96 because they produced Secrets and Lies and Breaking the Waves. They also did like The Last Seduction, The Apostle, High Art, Hillary and Jackie, these types of movies. Gramercy did King of the Hill for Soderbergh. They were Dazed and Confused, Mallrats. There were a lot of like co-productions there with Gramercy, but like they were the usual suspects. 
Dead Man Walking, and then the big ones for them in terms of Oscars were Fargo and then Elizabeth. So 1999, Barry Diller creates USA Films because he was an executive at USA Network at the time. USA Films then has this like wild three-year run where it's like being John Malkovich, Topsy Turvy, Traffic, Gosford Park, Nurse Betty, just like all, all these like really tightly focused awards movies. They also did, it's funny, last was it last week that we talked about Session 9 and Series 7, The Contenders, in the same breath? I think so. Those were both That USA was in October. Movies. Oh, it was USA. Okay. Yeah. I would also say the movies you just mentioned also made money because a lot of those like Gramercy titles you're talking about, those were a little, those were smaller releases that, you know, we still talk about, but like being John Malkovich made real money. Yeah. Traffic made money. I will say, you know, for being so small with those Gramercy movies, the fact that like Dazed and Confused, Usual Suspects, Fargo, like in terms of 90s movies that stuck, that's pretty good. I will say. So Usual Suspects made money, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, and even if it didn't, like, it really lodged its... I'm pretty sure it did, but also... Like, it lodged itself in the consciousness. Absolutely. Like, to this day. So, USA Films operates for about three years, and then in 2002, Universal buys, essentially, USA Films and merges it with something that they called Universal Focus, which I don't even know what they produce but they were trying to get their own sort of this was when all of the big studios wanted their own little boutique oscar studios specialty label right this was the fox searchlight era and you know we'll talk about one of these days i want to do a warner independent movie because like what an interesting little flash in the pan warner independent was and then good machine which was another production company that was begun by james sheamus and ted hope who ended up being big deals with focus obviously james sheamus tied so closely to ang lee in his movies and so obviously like brokeback mountain came from that they created focus features out of this merger and immediately focus became a major player in the oscar game and yeah i mean i feel like 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 you know 2003 lost in translation like that was like boom we're here we are ready to put our and even before that i feel like far from heaven which sort of fell right at the border of usa films and focus like it really hit the ground running as a major oscar player absolutely so yeah that's your little history lesson on focus features i think (laughs) you know a really for as much as and i think they were positioned as a as miramax was a beginning to sort of seed their dominance I think Focus really picked up that mantle. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even the movie we're talking about, like, it, granted, this movie did not make that much money. We're talking about a summer release. I think this movie made about three, four million dollars. This is the kind of thing that, like, Focus will release in the spring now and, like, make some money while there's no other movies like this. Yeah. So, uh, like, just thinking about the branding still. Focus is... In- it's interesting to talk about Focus now because... They never really went away necessarily, but like in after Brokeback Mountain, I feel like their their track record became less 
pristine and they would they would ebb and flow right where like they right. had a lot where they of... would have just a few movies in a single year and then you have a year like this where they have a ton of movies right where like they did atonement and they did milk which was a big one for them and i'm trying to think what were the you know the kids are all right so it's like you know yeah. not every year but like every few years you know they'll have a beginners they'll have a moonrise kingdom they'll have a Dallas Buyers Club. Do you know what I mean? And so they never go away for too long, but it does feel like I'm waiting for the comeback for Focus, where, like, I want you to be a Fox Searchlight. I want you to be an every-year major player. Last year they had Darkest Hour, and then this year they had Tully, which is so good. Tully, I feel like, is the best encapsulation of, like, what I want Focus to be. I definitely agree with you about Tully there. Obviously, I'm well on the record of loving that movie. Okay, but here's my question for you, because you're saying uh, you want them to come back in a big way, and we already mentioned that we think that the boy erased Mary, Queen of Scots, on the basis of sex, is not going to take them there. I'm really beginning to think, and granted, things could have already shifted by the time this episode airs, I think Black Klansman is going to be their big play this year. I mean, it's very possible. I think I think people forget that they have Black Klansmen. Yeah. For some weird reason, but like that's the one they should be chasing. Yes. I'm a little bit mixed on Black Klansmen as a movie actually, but I think you're probably right in terms of where the best pro- prospects for success lie for Focus this year. And... I have some reservations about the movie myself, but part of the reason why I say that is I think it's a very, very mainstream movie yes. that appeals to a lot of different people. Yeah, I think and that's it's making money. True. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And like you said, by the time people are listening to this, the whole entire landscape very well may have changed. Let's bring but it back interesting... to let's bring it back yeah. to Door on the Floor for a second, though. In terms of you did mention that it's a summer release, which is so puzzling to me. Like, any time that the movie like this oh, yeah. gets released in the summertime, and especially then. Like, now I feel like we're maybe more equipped to have the film calendar be an all-year kind of a thing, but it was a lot more regimented in 2004, and I think a lot of, a lot of people sort of saw that, like, releasing a movie like this in July rather than, like, November was even a sign on Focus's part that, like, this is maybe not everything we want it to be see and i uh, i'm not sure if i get that so much in that in that the studio wouldn't have had the confidence maybe that's true but like it's also like they need to be releasing things throughout the year they can't save all their oh right the last three months i just mean like perception wise oh well yeah well and especially when it opens with the type of reviews that it got you know they weren't necessarily bad largely but it's not the type of reviews it would have needed great reviews to carry through the rest of the year just like outstanding stellar a lot of unanimous like praise and vocalness and even just like bridges right and even like you know performances other than bridges if it was like bridges and basinger or something like that getting but the basinger you know what's funny about uh the marion role is Todd Williams, the director, who we haven't really talked about because he, you know, he had done The Adventures of Sebastian Cole and he hasn't really done a whole ton since. Paranormal Activity 2. Paranormal Activity 2 is like his big claim to fame, which like that franchise was already on rails by the time he had got to that. So um, 
he used to be married to Famke Jansen. I think he's currently what? I think he's currently married to Gretchen Mall. He used to be married to Famke Jansen, which was a surprise to me as well. How interesting would she have been? I was about to Marianne say, role. like, I like her so much. I remember her. I mean, this role was probably very problematic um, by today's standards, but I remember her on the second season of Nip, Nip Tuck, Tuck and being like, "Yes, why aren't people talking about her on Nip Tuck this season?" Um, that would have been very problematic. She, You're yeah. absolutely right, but like, man, was she amazing? Yeah, it was problematic at the time, I think, and like, there was, you know, we did not have even nearly as sharp a an eye towards um, trans representation, let's say. Um, Not to give away that, you know. Not to give away the reveal of that, like, mid-season of a show that nobody talks about anymore. Right, exactly. But she is incredible in that season, um, doing, like, some really gross Ryan Murphy madness. Um, No, she's an interesting performer. Yeah, she would have been good for this role. I... I still think Kim Basinger is good and suited to this role. No, you've um, sold me. I feel like you've sold me. But, I mean, like, it's interesting because Kim Basinger, it's so, like, almost, like, uh, surprising when you look back at this movie at the time because, like, she had an Oscar. Yeah. He only had one nomination. This is, like, smack dab between this and his win for Crazy Heart. Because, correct me if I'm no, wrong, No, he had had more nominations. He had had... No? Um, he had had a few nominations, I think, by this point, because he had had the nomination for The Contender in 2000, but he had been nominated. Oh, was he nominated for Starman? He was nominated for Starman, yeah. Yeah. Um, I always forget that little genre one. Um, but he was sort of known as kind of an overlooked actor, and it's interesting that, like, oh, he had been nominated a bunch. He was nominated for The Last Picture Show. He was nominated for Thunderbolt and really? Lightfoot. Yeah. Oh, wow. Then Never Starman, mind. then The Contender. So he was a four-time Oscar nominee by the time this had happened. So, like, there was a lot of momentum behind him at this point. But it's interesting that if, like, The Door in the Floor is such a different role than what we think of him now. And I think because he didn't end up getting that, like, Oscar attention or, like, any kind of attention for this movie mainstream-wise, and then Crazy Heart worked for him, and I think... You know, you're never too old to get typecast, and all of a sudden now, it's... He's Rooster Cogburn in everything. That's the thing. He gets the nomination for True Grit. He gets the nomination for Hell or High Water. And he's just... He's become an old coot so quickly and so completely that it's it's sort of frustrating because he was a really versatile kind of actor. You look at The Fisher King. You look at Fearless. You look at, you know, all these movies that he made throughout the... Even just, you know, throughout the the late 90s, they kind of like didn't it was almost like the dude kind of revitalized him creatively a little bit because you have him in things like Arlington Road. Sure. Where he's not really being used to his creative capacity, not in the way that he isn't now. But right. He became sort of like the, the kind of the straight man and things. But like. You look at stuff like the American remake of The Vanishing, which is so sort of maligned, but, like, he's creepy as fuck in that movie. He's terrifying. Yeah. He's, like, blandly malevolent. That's, um, the, that's the way to put it. So it's 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 a little bit of a bummer when I... And I loved him in Hell or High Water, and I think he's great in True Grit. But it's a bummer to sort of look at this, like, fantastic actor and to see him so incredibly narrowed down now. It's it's strange, and I wonder if the Oscar had come for 
the door on the floor instead of crazy hearts, whether we would be seeing that to this degree. And I can't imagine we would. I have high belief that if this had been released in like October or November, that he would have been nominated this year because like the type of reviews that this movie has. And I think the temperature that this movie operates at it's, it needs outlandishly strong reviews for it to stay in the conversation. Yeah. Through half of a year. So let's you know? talk about the the best actor race in 2004, because, you know, we say that we talk about how he could have gotten a nomination. There's a few people who aren't budging from that race. I think Jamie Foxx was always going to win that year. Yeah. Like that. Leonardo DiCaprio was always going to be nominated. Right. For the aviator. So the other nominees are Clint Eastwood for Million Dollar Baby, which that was a late breaking movie that all of a sudden was everywhere. And that nomination especially was a surprise. It was a surprise, but it's like, wow, they really like this movie. Then yeah. Don Cheadle for Hotel Rwanda, which was a movie that was sort of lurking semi below the surface all that Oscar season and then Oscar nomination day Cheadle and Sophie Okonedo both show up in the acting categories and it's like oh they really liked Hotel Rwanda a movie that I feel like is decidedly fine well and it was also a screenplay nominee too yeah the the voters really like that and then there's Johnny Depp in Finding Neverland which is kind of the halo nomination the year after Pirates of the Caribbean all of a sudden Oscar had flipped a switch and decided, after years and years of ignoring Johnny Depp doing really great work in things like Edward Scissorhands, all of a sudden now they really like him. And now they're going to give him a nomination for doing an incredibly milquetoast performance in an incredibly milquetoast movie in Finding Neverland that managed to get a Best Picture nomination and a Best Actor nomination for nothing? Like, I really... Quite literally nothing. And, like, we approached this conversation with, like, there were people who were always going to get nominated. Like, Johnny Depp is, by and large, the weakest nominee in this lineup. And he, I would argue he was still always going to get nominated for it. So where, then, where does Bridges go? Does he bump out Eastwood? Does he bump out Cheadle? Yeah. Is that who we're thinking? Okay. I think, I mean, maybe Don Cheadle, but I would probably say Clint Eastwood because Clint Eastwood didn't show up anywhere correct like he wasn't even yeah globe nominated i don't think he was sag nominated outside of ensemble but i think if you if you go back to that oscars and the waves of goodwill coming i remember going into that oscars and it was neck and neck with million dollar baby and the aviator and a lot of people were talking about a possible split that scorsese would finally win best director but million dollar baby might still take best picture and because million dollar baby was such a late breaker I don't think we ever quite knew. It was very similar, actually, to Shakespeare in Love. In the, mm-hmm. And I mean, that race has a whole lot of other shenanigans in terms of Harvey Weinstein strong-arming. But I feel like we... Ne- I think I went back and I watched the 98 Oscars again semi-recently, within the last couple of years. And I remember being like, why did we ever think Saving Private Ryan was going to win Best Picture? Everything in the, like air that year was Shakespeare in Love, where between Whoopi coming out dressed as the queen to sort of how much that like the score for that movie tended to be like the score for the night. And I think Million Dollar Baby sort of feels similar to me now, where it's just like, how did we ever think the aviator had a shot when like clearly Hollywood was still so incredibly in love with Clint Eastwood and was so, you know, I don't think Million Dollar Baby has endured as rosily as you know even like shakespeare in love has i think many more people love shakespeare in love for as much of a controversial movie as that is 
then love There's million dollar baby. There's a small tide turning for million dollar baby lately that I've noticed that people are revisiting it and like remembering what they loved about it initially before they turned on it. I think it's a good movie. I just feel like in terms of a cultural sticking point, I don't think either that or the aviator stuck around. And it's interesting. No. If you well, look at that year's best picture race, like Sideways is the movie that has stuck around the most. Sideways and then Jamie Foxx's performance as Ray. Right? And that female cast that at least one of them should have been nominated. Anyway. Anyway. Um um the thing about Million Dollar Baby and especially and in relation to the Aviator was the Aviator was expected all year long. Even like in July when the door on the floor was opening we knew about the aviator we were expecting the aviator to do well it was part of the build-up for martin scorsese well and but scorsese had gone through arrived... that whole season with gangs of new york and that didn't win anything and then i think everybody was like all right we'll get him next time and Even this was the next people time. that loved the aviator though like there was no emotional connection to that movie and then million dollar baby arrives and everyone's weeping and everybody has an emotional response to this movie and that's how you knew it was and... going to win because none of the movies that year, maybe Finding Neverland, but like still Ugh. people didn't love that movie. People barely saw that there movie. There weren't, I mean. Did I ever tell you the my experience with Finding Neverland? I went and saw it at, um, I can't remember exactly which theater that I saw it at in Buffalo, but we, uh, me and like seven other people in the theater. And the movie theater had forgot to hit the lights for that room so the movie starts the trailers were all playing and the lights were on and then they never darkened the theater fully they darkened it sort of it was like halfway darkened for finding neverland and none of us in the theater cared enough to get up and tell somebody that it was so we watched that entire movie in like semi-darkness and nobody cared because we were so incredibly like halfway yeah just like not interested in this movie which i think that sums it up I saw Finding Neverland because this was in the days of sneak previews still happening. I feel like I saw it like a month or two before it opened in like a public sneak preview screening, not like a, you know, advanced like buzz screening or anything. And like by the time that the nominations happened, I could not tell you anything about that movie. Yeah. It's it, it evaporated that quickly. Remember when like, Kate um, Winslet had buzz for supporting actress and people were like, she's much more likely to get nominated for Finding Neverland than she is for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind because we were so incredibly like cynical and pessimistic. We're just like... Right. Remember when Julie Christie had buzz oh for Finding Neverland? God. Because... Ugh. Yeah, I do. Poor Julie Christie. Not, that uh was not for Julie Christie. It was for the like dominance of that movie that nobody gave a shit about justice for um, away from her justice let's talk justice for away from her i'm just gonna say it. anyway um <laughs> what do you want to talk about the independent spirit awards um well let's talk about door in the floors actual awards run because not only is this like the first time we're talking about a movie that we both genuinely like this is one that had the most like for real like build up even though there wasn't that much to it yeah um you mentioned Indie Spirits. It was nominated for Best Actor and Best Screenplay, the two um, categories that I think would be most likely for it to have made yeah. into an Oscar nomination. Lost to Sideways for both, which 
I think we can both also be fairly certain, considering we just trashed the life out of that movie, what little life it has, um, that in terms of Oscar, we would put the door in the floor in Finding Neverland's adapted screenplay spot. Yeah. Um, Yeah, we would. But Door in the Floor's other awards accolades, it was nominated for a few critics' prizes. Um, The Boston critics um, gave a tie nomination per IMDb for Kim Basinger in lead which I think is interesting yeah. considering she's not in the last 20 or so minutes of the movie. Yeah. Um, Seattle critics nominated Jeff Bridges. Um, there's, it was nominated for the scripter prize, which we've never really talked about before. Scripter is always interesting because they award adapt adaptations. And then the source. And, uh, right. So it's going to the screenplay and to the original text. It's an odd little, uh, you know, I am all for awards setting themselves apart. It's an odd thing to award a novelist just for having sold his screenplay yeah. in a way that like was successfully adapted. I will say maybe more credit to Todd Williams than he's gotten for doing a good job in adapting A Widow for one year and just being like, you know what? Nope, I'm just going to take this first third. And I'm going to give it a, you know, beginning, middle, and end all its own. And I thought that was, you know, that was a task that he had ahead of him. It's it wasn't... a really clean adaptation. Yeah. Like this, like we mentioned earlier, the plot, you know, it's, there's not a whole lot to the plot synopsis. And it's like, that's part of what makes it a watchable movie. Um, okay. The other one, which we haven't talked about this awards body that much if at all yet yeah it was a special recognition title for the national board of review which i'm not sure if they still do this but this is like national board of review gives like their 10 best films their like five best foreign films their five best independent films and then they would do like a list of 20 titles or so for like a special recognition movie it's basically the national board of reviews way of getting everybody in the room um, yeah, for their awards and more power to them. Um, they I are... feel like the National Board of Review understands search engine optimization way better than any awards body. And before before it ever became a thing. Yeah, I also feel like a lot of people sort of speak with some degree of resentment towards the National Board of Review, and I never really have. I like the idea that especially when they were the first ones out of the gate. Now, like, I feel like sometimes the New York critics decide they want to get a jump on them. But, like, I really feel like the National Board of Review should be the first one out of the gate. A, because they're the ones that are the least sort of, you know, they're not all critics. Do you know what I mean? Some of them are. Right. There's there's film historians in there. Yeah. Uh, they've been in the past kind of cagey about what they're... They tend um, to cast the widest net. They tend to throw something to everybody. But I think as a table setter for the season, I think that works. And I think as a yeah. as somebody who follows the Oscar season, I kind of appreciate that. And they make, like... I mean, like, I think part of this is because they've always, like, gone for Clint Eastwood in some way for a long stretch of time. But sometimes they make cool choices. Yeah. Like, I always think it's interesting that they chose Quills for Best Picture. Yeah. Yes. It is interesting. Because, like, Quills, as much as you're like, oh, it's just, like, this costume drama, you watch it, and it is, like, a creepy, pervy, weird-ass movie. Yeah. That I love. Even recently, um... when they gave Best Picture to a Most Violent Year, like, they don't, you know end up matching up with the Oscars 
as often as the other ones, but like I like that. I like the places where they diverge. Did you want to I talk agree. about movies for grownups really quickly before I go into my? I was going to say about the I saved the best one for last. <laughs> Jeff Bridges nominated for our favorite, the AARP Movie for Grownups Awards. Obviously, so that's a good. Uh, that makes I, a lot of sense. It, the lineup that he was actually with. No Oscar nominees, which I feel like AARP does a substantial amount. Though, I mean, in a year where you have Don Cheadle and Jamie Foxx, you know, crushing it, it's a little disheartening that they have all these, like, old white dads, basically, with the exception of Omar Sharif, who was nominated for Monsieur Ibrahim, which, correct me if I'm wrong, that was a foreign language, like, submission that didn't get nominated. That sounds about right. Yeah. And maybe it was nominated... I'll look through later. Liam Neeson um, for Kinsey, who won that year for the Best Actor in Movies for Grown Ups, um, was another one who I feel like was really on the cusp of that yeah. Best Actor category that year. That's like my favorite Liam Neeson performance. I am that person that will like stand up for Kinsey like every day of the week. Oh, yeah. Kinsey's like a really good movie. They also feel, must just like not do supporting category, uh, categories because all of their best actress, almost all of their best actress nominees are supporting actresses that year, where it's like Cloris Leachman and Spanglish, a SAG nominee, by the way. Um, Meryl Streep and the Manchurian Candidate, Lily Tomlin and I Heart Huckabees, which is such a good nomination. She's so funny. Although if you're going to take one actress from I Heart Huckabees, it really should be Naomi Watts. But let's let's not quibble. Their best director all the is Mike Nichols for Closer, which is a great choice. I know Closer is not an uncontroversial movie. I feel like there's a little bit of a polarization there, but I love that movie, and I think he does a great job directing that. So, God bless you, AARP. Well. We definitely need to watch the AARP movie for Grown Ups Awards since they broadcast on PBS. I'm just going to live stream it. Just It'll be perfect. Our first ever live podcast will just, you know, watch the AARP <laughs> Awards. I want to talk about one other Oscar category I really feel like that this deserved, that Door on the Floor deserved to break into, which is the Best Original Score category. Not just because that year's nominees were pretty lame, like Finding Neverland, which has just become the punching bag of this podcast, and I'm fine with that. That wins Best Score, which is super dumb. Um, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, which is fine, but like John Williams had already written the Harry Potter theme and Azkaban doesn't really diverge from it enough to justify a score nomination as far as I'm concerned. Passion of the Christ, which was a lot of anti-Semitic wailing. The Village, which I can't hear in my head right now, but like I'm sure that was fine. Lemony Snicket, whatever. I would say The Village would be the like far and ahead worthy winner here. I think that, that probably makes sense. But the score for The Door on the Floor is gorgeous it's one of my favorite movie scores of the last 25 years maybe ever it's so gorgeous it's used to interesting effect in the movie by todd williams where we first hear it in the movie when eddie is jerking off to uh, marion's panties on the bed and then, I can't believe it took us this long to talk about all the yanking in this movie. I mean, it's a John Irving adaptation. There's going to be a lot of right. jerking off. It's a given. Um, but so, so, you know, he's jerking off to her panties and the music's playing and it's sort of uh, discordant. And then she walks in on him and it stops very abruptly. And then we hear it again as Bridges is running away from Mimi Rogers in her, like, SUV trying to run him down, and, you know, and down the beach. And again, it's used as sort of a counterpoint to the action. And... 
I like when movies do that, when the, you know, the score doesn't really match up with the action. I think it's interesting. It's, you know, it's telling to me that the, that this piece of music doesn't play us into the end credits. Like after Bridges tells him this, you know, yeah, incredibly sad story about um, his sons or any of that. Like it's not used to accentuate sad moments, even though I feel like it's such a sort of achingly beautiful piece of music. This the the sort of central theme. I think the way the music is used in this movie is one of the things that make this a good John Irving adaptation in that it gets the tone of what John Irving does and uses it on screen yeah. better than his other adaptations does. And I, I'm glad you brought that up as far as like, you know, it's in contrast to the action that we're watching. The other thing I want to bring up is, so the score is by composer Marcelo Zarvos and Every once in a while, you'll see it credited to Peter Vronsky, who I'm pretty sure is the conductor for the actual performance of the score. I feel like this is a piece of music that gets more mischaracterized than anything I've ever seen, because almost everybody will tell you, and if you ever try and like look up on the internet, it's always credited to the film Never Let Me Go, the Mark Romanek film Never Let Me Go. Yep. Because it's used in that movie's trailer, and it's so... I mean, that is wh- that is a instance where this music isn't used discordantly. It's actually used very much in keeping with the tone of Never Let Me Go. It is one of the best marriages of pre-existing film score to movie trailer, I can remember. And that's... And because it's used so perfectly, people assume that this is the score for Never Let Me Go, which is not true. Rachel Portman wrote the score for Never Let Me Go, and it's different. We were moved from Hailsham at 18. Tommy, Ruth, and I. Exactly how much experience have you guys had with the outside? Quite a lot. We haven't. Drinks? Five Cokes, please. If there was a boy and a girl, and they were properly in love and they could prove it, then they would be given a few years together before they began their donations. Why do you do that thing, squeezing Tommy's shoulder? I'm allowed to touch Tommy, aren't I? It's the way you're touching him. Suppose for a second that there is a special arrangement for Helsham students if they're in love. Although Tommy really likes you as a friend, he just doesn't see you that way. We are modelled on trash. We're in love. It's true love. It's verifiable. We didn't have to look into your souls. We had to see if you had souls at all. I wish I could help you. You poor creatures. But it makes it impossible to search for this as a, you know, as the score for The Door on the Floor, and it drives me crazy. And every time I see it's, like, listed, it's, like, everywhere. Oh, it makes me so mad. Because it's been used in other things as well. Yes, it's used in a lot of different things. It's really, really, you know, ugh. It's so Listeners, good. if it's you so haven't beautiful. already caught up to The Door and the Floor, we watched it on HBO. You can go back and watch it. You will hear this music and you will know it instantly. I'm going to play a snippet of it right now and I'll edit it into the episode because, like, it's, you know it, it's gorgeous. It's just talk about, like, sinking into, you know, a movie score. It is, honestly, it's one of my favorite. And it's head and shoulders better than anything that was nominated that year for score. It's kind of ridiculous. 
anyway. Anything else before we move into IMDb game? No. I feel like we covered it, right? <laughs> I feel like we covered it. I think it. we. I think this is like the first time that I feel like we covered it. Um, I do I'm glad actually. That we got to talk a movie we genuinely love. I want to shout out one more thing. I don't know if one garment is enough to justify a best costume nomination. We've seen that sometimes. If if I say that the tunic that Jeff Bridges' character wears is the green dress of this movie, would you understand what I'm talking about? Is the green dress in atonement of this movie? Joseph, I am so embarrassed that I still had yet to bring up Jeff Bridges' linen muumuu that he wears (laughs) while naked through most of this movie. He even, like, ties it at the knee sometimes. I'm like, yes, like... uh, racquetball Liter- scene or the squash court that he has above yeah. the barn where he literally just like ties it into a knot so he won't trip over it as he's like playing squash with his tunic on it's quite something it is yeah it's it's very grieving novelist but make it fashion yeah but it's also just like gray it's just like there's nothing to it it looks so comfortable it like does. i it genuinely does. need a muumuu yeah Oh my god! Yeah. Okay. I'm glad we not got that playing out. racquetball, but I need a movie. I'm glad we got that. Um, no, because it made me think so much of Meryl's caftan. It was just like <laughs> when you order it when it arrives. Another like, another garment that justified a costume nomination all its own, or at least it should have. And the fact that it didn't get it is bullshit. Justice for the post. All right, let's jump into IMDb game. IMDb game is what we do every week here to close out the show. We give quiz each other on actors. We bring up their IMDb list. And on IMDb, when you look up an actor, it'll list four movies that they're most known for. And I give one name to Chris. He gives one to me. We try and guess. If we get two guesses wrong, we are given the years of the movies that we have failed to get. If we get those wrong, then we just start throwing out hints like candy because we want to help each other out because we are friends. So And we're diplomatic. We want you to find the answer eventually. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's no Even fun. Even if you've essentially lost the game. <laughs> exactly. So we tend to try and I at least tend to try and pick somebody who is tangentially related to this week's episode. I have one for you. I'm assuming you've already picked out yours for me. Yes? Yes. Do you want to go first? Uh, sure. Okay. Let's do this. Okay. So... One person we did not mention, and I'm surprised we didn't, because we didn't actually talk that much about John Foster. Wait, time out. We're going to back up. We are not ready to go into IMDb game. We have not talked about my favorite cast member in The Door on the Floor. She doesn't show up until the end of the movie. John Foster's character is going around trying to recover a, a framed photograph that had been damaged in the movie. It was very traumatic for Elle Fanning. This is all while he's trying to keep Elle Fanning away from the house so Kim Basinger can like move away. Uh, who is the owner and proprietor of this framing store? National legend, national treasure. Tony winner. Donna fucking Murphy. Just, just shows, shows up. up in her little like frame store, like you know, doling out customer service. Sort of flirting with him a little bit, but like you know, oh, she fully flirts with him after like she takes care of the situation. She like she gives him the get... like come up and see me here sometime for like next she summer. She literally like takes her hair down like when she comes <laughs> back to him. 
It's like, I don't know what's so special about John Foster that all of these, like, grown women want to fuck him all the time. Ugh. I can't believe we went through all of this without mentioning Donna Murphy. I would have been remiss, to say the least. I would have been so mad at myself if we had, like, ended this and realized... That we, we hadn't, hadn't talked, talked about, about Donna. Donna Murphy in this. We would have had to release a special like, B-side <laughs> episode just to talk about Donna Murphy. I knew she so, was in this movie. I had seen this movie multiple times. I remembered she was in this movie. And yet when she showed up, I just yelped. I was just like, I was so happy to see her. Well, me too. Even in the theater when I was a teenager watching this movie with my dad. Yes, it was awkward as fuck to watch this movie with my father. We had just seen Donna Murphy in Wonderful Town. And I oh. freaked out in the theater. And afterwards, my dad was like, why were you, like, so crazy about that woman? I was like, we saw her in Wonderful Town! I, of course, at this point in my life, was so ignorant of the theater that I had no idea. But I had just seen her in the first thing that I had ever seen her in, which was as Dr. Octopus's wife in Spider-Man 2, which was earlier that summer. Wild. I love that this is what she did on her Mondays away from... (sighs) wonderful town (laughs) she just headed out to the island and performed you know this one scene she gives him some great side eye too we're like it's ah it's one of my favorite one scene performances she's so great you said that l fanning was your second favorite performance in this movie that's wrong how dare you donna murphy donna murphy Murphy. sorry l you're number three sorry l you get the bronze anyway now let's go back to imdb game Right. Or we can edit it to be like, and now we're going to IMDb game. Nah, I'm fine with it. I'm fine with just like the chaos of it. It's fine. Donna deserves it. This has been a chaotic episode, and I am here for yes. it. Listeners, hopefully you are too. If you're not, don't tell us. Um, okay, right. so um, uh, as I was saying in my little preamble, we didn't talk about John Foster that much. This role was actually originally going to go to his brother, Jeff Bridges' co-star for Hell or High Water, Ben Foster. All right. Can I tell you? Your IMDb game no, it's not. is Ben Foster. No, it's not. Because my pick for you is Ben Foster. And so I'm we literally... We finally did it! Okay. So I'm literally okay, looking so at we... it right now. All right. So Ben Foster, <laughs> we'll just say his we'll top stick four, a which pin. is Hell or High Water. Yes. 310 for Yuma, which I think weirdly shows up it for people uh-huh. in this, like... Uh, there uh, there must be a lot of fans for 310 to Yuma. <laughs> the Messenger, which he co-starred with Woody Harrelson. That was Woody Harrelson nominated for that. And then Alpha Dog. Indeed. I I guess that's like a dorm room movie or something that people are like watching a shit ton of. Um, ben Foster also, I would say, because now we're like, when this episode airs, we'll be in the thick of like award season kicking off. I really hope people don't forget about him in Leave No Trace. Oh, I haven't seen it yet, but I trust your judgment on that. I think Ben Foster... Quite genuinely, listeners and you, Mr. Reed, put Leave No Trace very high on your need-to-catch-up-to list. Oh, it is. It is absolutely incredible, Um, and he's wonderful in it as well. That's good. That's a good recommendation. All right, let's take 30 seconds of silence and find our backup choices. I always have backup choices. Oh, do you? I didn't. Okay, so you give me... All right, I think I found one, so we don't need to take 30 seconds of silence then. We wouldn't have made you listen to 30 Seconds of Silence, by the way. Listener, we edit these things, so it's fine. All right, so give me your back. 
<laughs> choice. <laughs> okay, so we spent some time talking about the aviator. Um, I feel like one of the givens of that se- of this season that was hard to otherwise crack was the best supporting actress race because we had one Miss Kate Blanchett playing the beloved Catherine Hepburn. Your IMDb game is Kate Blanchett. Mother fuck. Okay. That's tough. No television, no voiceover. No television, no voiceover. See, I feel like Kate Blanchett is on the easier side for what I usually give you. Well, the thing with Kate Blanchett is you're spoiled for choice, right? There's so many to choose from. Choose wisely. Elizabeth. Yes. Okay. And I would have said that that was the hardest one, Joseph. Oh, interesting. And you just, like, came out guns a-blazing. Blue Jasmine. Yes. Carol. Yes. Oh, am I going to go four for four? Um, if you get four for four, it will be the first time on this podcast. I won't even be mad about it. Oh, all right. I f- it is right there. I think it's right there for you as far as like. Is it the aviator? Is that a guess? Yes. No, it's not the aviator. You just did not get a perfect score. Ew. But as far as the type of things that are prone to show up on IMDb game, I don't know what that means. That I mean shouldn't be giving things. you hints. You only say... have one wrong answer. Yes. Um. All right. My second guess is going to be Thor Ragnarok. No. Okay. Give me a year. All right. So it, it's 2013. Oh, same year as Blue Jasmine. What else was she in in 2013? Or no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I misread my notes. It's 2003. Oh, okay. So it's a franchise. Wait. Okay. Let me get that. It's a franchise. 2003. Kate Blanchett was in The Missing. She was also in apparently a franchise. Oh, oh, jeez. I got it. 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 Yeah. It's The Lord of the Rings: The Return of the King. Correct. Which I often forget that she's in. She is. She made. Six goddamn Hobbit movies. It's because she's real. I didn't see any of the Hobbit. You're fine. Movies, but you're fine. The she's really only in Fellowship of the Ring. Well, no, they bring her in terms of the Hobbit movies. They like, yeah, um, yes, you're right. Of the original trilogy, she's really only in a significant presence in in the Fellowship of the Ring. Yes, you know, I have to say though, like, and obviously, like, Kate Blanchett's going to be the one to take us there. It's like. You look at some of these answers for IMDb game, and it's like, do gay people even use IMDb? (laughs) And obviously, Carol showing up for Kate Blanchett when she has been in a Marvel movie. That's proof. The Lord of the Rings movies. She's been in Wes Anderson movies. She's been in, like, Hot Fuzz. For Kate Blanchett to show up for Carol, clearly gay people do use IMDb, and I'm so proud to see it. Indeed. I'm so proud to see it. So... My choice for you, I went back into the filmography of Todd Williams. He's only directed four feature movies. Uh, the Adventures of Sebastian Cole, then The Door on the Floor, then Paranormal Activity 2, which we mentioned. The one we didn't mention was in 2016, he directed the Stephen King adaptation of The of not, not the Cell. Mm, different movie. We've talked about The Cell. <laughs> uh, we love The Cell. Cell, the movie where cell phone signals 
you know, do bad, terrible, scary things. Hey, yeah, yeah, that yeah. movie starred John Cusack, who we've talked about a few times on this podcast in relation to Oscar stuff. He's going to be my guy for you. Guess the four John Cusack movies. John Cusack. Okay. Say anything. Yes. Gross point blank. Yes. Um, the butler? No. It's mm. an interesting guess. There's got to be some weird recent answer on. Uh, well, you mentioned Stephen King, 1408. Yes! Wow! 1408! That is by um, far the hardest one. Oh, really? Yeah. Um. Okay. See, I feel like John Cusack is a little bit in the way, like what you were saying about Cape Blanchett. It's like there's a wealth of. There are. Though. Like, when I think of something like serendipity, it's probably not going to show up on this. No, that is not a guess. Um, (laughs) Okay, so I already got a no on the butler. Yeah. Being John Malkovich. No, but that's a good guess. So you're going to get a year now. The year for your missing movie is 2000. Which is right after being John Malkovich. Yes. Oh, High Fidelity. High Fidelity, yep. That's the one I was going to say. It was the last real John Cusack movie, I feel like, right? Where, like, after that, he starts to either... Now he's just crazy. Yeah. Like, he's just... uh, He's doing some weird stuff. I recently rewatched Chirac because I was writing about it. Yeah. And he is genuinely... I think the worst part of that movie. Yeah, he's really bizarre in Chirac. And I love that movie. I am not one of those people that dislikes the movie. Um, he's genuinely bad in it. Hey, we got all of them. Yeah. Good job for us. Good job for us. Good rebound from stuff. last week when we had to each take a mulligan. Yeah. Ugh, we'll right. accept it. And you know what? That's our episode. If you want more This Head Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Uh, Joe, tell our wonderful listeners where they can find you and the rest of your work. Sure. I am also on Twitter. I'm at Joe Reed. That's spelled R-E-I-D. I am also every day and night. <laughs> let's, let's say every day. Um, you can listen to it. Around whenever, the clock. You can read it whenever you want to at decider.com. Talking about film and television and everything that is on streaming. You go check me out there. And once again, I'm Chris File. You can find me on Twitter at Chris V File. That's F E I L. I am also at the Film Experience writing about soundtracks and Oscar ephemera. Um, we would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork once again. And once again, Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please, please, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you are finding us in the podcast world. Um, a five star review is always, of course, super appreciated by Joe and I. But it also helps us become more visible on iTunes and not like in a naked in our linen moo kind of way. Uh, but that is all for this week. We hope you will be back next week for more buzz. Bye.